Thanks for joining us and supporting Vikido Fitness. We ask for your continued support by becoming an It's All About Health and Fitness premium member. Go to www.vikidofitness.com forward slash join. Again, that's www.vikidofitness.com forward slash join and register for a $6 monthly subscription. And remember, keep listening, sharing, and checking us out. The views and opinions expressed are for general informational purposes only. Consult with your physician or medical health care provider for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Today, we talk about the latest innovative science research. We have joining us my friend and colleague, Dr. Rhonda Prisby. She is talking about her exciting, innovative science research in the field of bone vasculature and microcirculation. Dr. Rhonda is a physiologist, a research scientist, and an associate professor of kinesiology at the University of Texas at Arlington. Dr. Prisby will not only share with us her latest research that may change the future of how we treat heart disease and stroke, she will also talk about her interesting career journey and how she chose the path that she truly loves. If you're interested in updates and Dr. Rhonda Prisby's research, join the Bone Vasculature and Microcirculatory Society at www.bonebloodvessels.org. All this and more on It's All About Health and Fitness. Welcome to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks Bright. This program is brought to you by Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum. Now, here's your host, Vicki Doe and D. Banks Bright. I'm Dr. Vicki Haywood Doe, and with me is the one and only Dr. Virginia D. Banks Bright. Hey, Vicki, how are you? It's been a minute. It's been a long time. You've minute. been traveling. I've been keeping up with you. <laughs> You've been traveling. And you were traveling to one of the historically black colleges, which was really interesting because I kind of was raised on the campus, Shaw University in um, St. Augs. So those, and my parents are products of um, HBCU. So that topic is near and dear to me. I know. My mom, she went to Hampton University and yeah. then Tuskegee. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Where um, George Washington Carver Mm -hmm. was, the Mm -hmm. peanut man. The peanut man. The peanut man. Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that your mom had gone to Tuskegee. Yeah, and and my Uncle John, all my peoples. Your peeps. My peeps. Went nice. to uncle, my uncle John went to Tuskegee, and okay. then my uncle Junior went to Savannah. Remember Savannah oh, State? Oh yeah, I rem- yeah. That's another HBCU. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, and that's the one that lives in Dayton. Okay. And then he got his master's at the Ohio State University. The Ohio State. You know, they were trying to get, did we talk about this, where the Ohio State was trying to get an official name of the Ohio State, and they weren't able to get it? Oh, yeah. we didn't I, we, we talk didn't, about We didn't that? talk about that. But didn't you hear that they, but were, we they did were trying to get that. the distinction as the Ohio State? And, and they didn't get they it didn't yet. They didn't get it yet, right. So we'll see, because we still say the Ohio State. They certainly have been winning some football games this season. I know. Wow, Mm. dominating everybody. I know. So we'll see, right? We'll We'll see. see. (laughs) We will see. We shall see. Yeah. Well, today we talk about the latest innovative science research that is happening out there. And as you know, we have a segment show that's called What's New? Hot Topics. That's where we read the latest various research articles and topics and discuss them. And we have at least 51. Can you believe that? We have 51 mm. of those shows within our wow. podcast archives. Yeah. Wow. Now, based on our stats and your comments, you guys love those segments because it keeps us up on to date. 
on the latest, you yes. know, the latest yes, research, yes, yes. the latest medical advice, health and wellness information, and all that that is out there. And then we try to, you know, mm-hmm. sip through and search through what's correct and what's bogus, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Definitely. And so today, we're excited because we're going to bring on the show a longtime friend and colleague of mine who's doing innovative science I've research. heard you talk about her a lot. Yeah, that's my mm-hmm. homegirl. What you say. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and she is Dr. Rhonda Prisby. She's a physiologist. And so the reason why I like bringing my fellow physiologists here. Because most of people think that we just do some little exercise, a little something, something, programming and something. That's the clinical part of mm-hmm. what we do mm-hmm. and the applied part of what we do. Mm-hmm. But we are physiologists. So she is in the lab. She has a beautiful lab. She does research, big time research, animal mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. And she's doing some serious discoveries. So I am so grateful that she has time to come on our show today. She's a research scientist. She's also an associate professor of kinesiology at the University of Texas at Arlington. Now, Dr. Prisby will share with us her research and and the finding. This finding that she's going to talk about today may change how in the future we treat chronic diseases. And this finding may contribute to what may be caused the development of heart disease and stroke. And so we definitely can't wait to hear all about it. So we can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Looking at her research, it was really very innovative. You know, that's going to be a whole new paradigm shift in terms of the way we think about strokes yeah. and heart disease I and know. stuff. So I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Good. I know. And a sister. Yeah, a sister girl. And a sister girl. Our, our sister friend. Yeah, sister girl. <laughs> yeah. So make sure, folks, make sure you go to our resources page, www.vikidofitness.com forward slash resources, and there you will find products, services that will be helpful to you as you embrace a life of health and fitness. And we have a variety of items on our resource list. We're constantly adding stuff that we think that (laughs) you will enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. So make sure you go and check us out. Mm -hmm. There's Reebok on there. There's what else? Spanx. We got Sun Basket. We got Medical Supply Depot. So instead of, you know, going to the drugstores, just sit down, take the time to order your supplies. You don't have to do those late night trips to the drugstore. Exactly. You can shop right online and right exactly. on Vicado Fitness. Yep. There you go. But let's talk about Warby Parker. Warby Parker, you know, some of us have to wear glasses. So we like to be in fashion, right, with yes. the frames and so forth. And Warby Parker, they offer affordable eyeglasses and frames. They have spent time and research designing and testing various face sizes and widths, widths of your face mm-hmm. to offer frames that actually fit and look good. And because, believe it or not, most people do not fit the standard um, size frame, you know, the medium width of popular styles. And so Wabi Parker, they have made sure that they can offer different sizes, but they are affordable. Frames can start at $95 with prescription lenses. And there's nothing like boosting your looks with stylish eyeglasses. It makes you feel good about yourself, (laughs) most especially if you are trying to get your weight under control and trying to live healthy. You know, you want to be looking good. Exactly. To reflect that. And a pair of fashionable glasses, they do that, right? Right. Those glasses. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Here's what we like, though. We want you to check out Wabi Parker. But what we like about and love about Wabi Parker is that with every pair of glasses purchase, a pair is distributed to someone in need. We love those companies that are doing a little good. In the neighborhood. In the neighborhood. And so we want you to make sure you check out our resources page. Look at all the other products and services that are offered on that page. Go to www.vikidofitness.com forward slash resources. And remember, when you use our affiliate links, On that page to buy any of our products and services, you are supporting us here 
at Vicky Doe Fitness. Well, you know, having worn glasses since I think the sixth or seventh grade, that's about the only thing that you can change, you know, mm-hmm. colors and styles and yes. all of that to improve things. Because first of all, I'm not doing LASIK because none of my ophthalmology friends have done LASIK. I know, one of my right? Friends said, well, <laughs> one of my ophthalmology friends says, well, you're going to need glasses one way or the other. You'll either need it farsighted or nearsighted. So mm-hmm. you probably won't get away without using any glasses with LASIK. And like I said, I don't see too many of my eye colleagues no. getting LASIK. Mm-mm. No. I'm too good with my eyes right now. That's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a spare. Uh-uh. Well, uh-uh. my eye doctor said as soon as he gets it, then he'll let me know. Oh, and that's I be- <laughs> You've been waiting how long? I've been waiting almost at least 18 um, years. Okay, there it is. None of them. I don't know any of them. And there I, it you is. Know, that, are, that are doing that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's interesting about the glasses. So I have to check them out, too. Yes. I have to check them out myself. Yes. And D, what we always say. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you for your support. Yes. Now, check it out, though. We have finished, D. Thank you for being the moderator for it was our panel yeah. and everything and everybody. It just came in. And just like that, it's over. It's over. Just like that, it's, it's over. It's our third annual yes. Healthy Heart, Healthy Living 2019. It's over, and it was a... Well attended. Well attended and a big success. A huge success. Yes. A huge success. And the place was beautiful. It was. The accommodations were lovely. The downtown Doubletree, they couldn't have been nicer. You know, the accommodations were great. The food was fabulous. I know. <gasps> a hotel having that greater food. I know. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. I think his name is Mark Canzanetta. Uh huh. The chef. The, the chef. Head chef. Yes. He was you know, good. That's one of my hangouts. So I love, I love that food that they serve there. And then the the evening was great with the sensations. And was that his daughter singing? That was his daughter, Jeff Green. Jeff Green. Yeah. Yes. Jeff um, Green. They're very good. And they've always come through for me yeah. at Vicky Doe Fitness, it was so we great. appreciate it. was well them. attended Friday evening, and then having Mark Perna there was yes. such a treat. Yes, yes, it yes. It was such a treat. It was fun. It was very fun, mm-hmm. and it was very informative. We had Kelly Ashby that came all the way from South Dakota right. to be on the panel, but yeah. she also did her workshop on emotional intelligence, and Dr. Nate just kept going on and on about how he really Love that uh, mm-hmm. presentation. Mm-hmm. And all the panelists, you know, we had Salt Me. You know, they had a whole line. Yeah. Salt Me, yeah. Camilla Marie, mm-hmm. all of them uh-huh. for our spa, our yeah. mini spa. Mm-hmm. And then Wayne Smith, the renowned yes. Wayne Smith. <laughs> I can't even say his name. <laughs> yeah. He was there with his nice. mindful movement. Very nice to meet him. Yeah, very nice. So we can put that on our checklist uh-huh. as done. Yep. And thank you, Dee, and everybody. Thank everybody, everybody for came, put, out, and came out and supported you. that yeah, event. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And we're starting now, thinking about next year. Already have some ideas. Already have some great yeah. ideas, folks, now. <laughs> and here, here's a, here's a plan of action. Don't wait to the last minute to get your <laughs> stuff. Get your stuff early yeah, right. now because we're going to be in the same place. Oh, good. I loved it. Oh, wonderful. Yes, I okay. put the money down. We're going to be good. in the same good, place. Good, good. Good, next year good. so stay tuned good folks choice. good choice i went to visit my youngest in nashville tennessee mm-hmm. fisk university yes so much history right so much history you know the jubilee singers mm-hmm. you know looking at the the pictures and how that they started that because they needed to make money yeah to bring in to the university you know it became big time the jubilee Singers. A lot of them were descendants of slaves. Yes. Uh, who, you know, went to that university. And some of the kids that, some of those students at Fisk post slavery were slave masters' kids that came there. The slave master, they were freed and mm-hmm. they came there, and many of them started that school. So it's got a huge, rich, rich history. Rich and history. Right across the street from Meharry. So, and, you know, me and you having been raised in the South, many doctors' wives went to Fisk. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. They were studying something they in the library. They were studying something. <laughs> <laughs> they Big were time. studying something. So many, many, many 
women went to Fisk and uh, and then went over across the street, and went right on across the street to yep. Meharry. There it is to the medical school. Yeah, yeah. and it's still yeah. it's still going strong, and it has a rich history too. Yeah, yeah. it's fact, still going in strong. In fact, they say that I don't know. Of course, now you know most of the medical schools, all the medical schools, obviously are integrated. But back in the day, when African Americans couldn't go to medical school, it was just Meharry and Howard. Mm-hmm. And at one time, you know, not even that long ago, 20, maybe 20 years ago, 80% of the physicians in this country went to, African-American physicians went to Howard or Meharry. Yes. Of course, now they have Howard, Meharry, and Morehouse. And Morehouse now, so, but yeah. they added that, mm-hmm. you know. And then a lot of Meharry, you know, they had this, the nurses that were trained exactly. and all that. Exactly. You know, a lot of the healthcare yes, folks exactly. would train over there. But it's, it's nice to go. Andrea is doing a semester there. Mm-hmm a part of a program, an exchange program, with Case, Western Reserve. Kudos to Kudos Case. Kudos to Case. Right? Kudos to Case. She's, she's had a rich background mm-hmm. going to the University of Cape Town in South Africa yes. and now at Fisk University mm-hmm. to really look at and see the historical background behind our right. schools and so forth. Exactly. Good so for her. good for her. Make mm-hmm. her much more well-rounded. Well-rounded. And the students there, they're awesome. They're striving. Yeah, yeah and they're doing great things Even in the community. Even if you and Dr. Nate will be eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> That's my go-to meal. That's so what go- are we having? <laughs> Beans and rice. Okay, yeah. It's that time. Yeah, it's Beans that time. and rice. <laughs> it's that time. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I can relate. So how was your week, T? So let's go back two weeks. I got my award in Washington, D.C. I went for that. It was fabulous. Went to Washington for the Infectious Disease Society of America and got the Watana Kunikorn Clinician of the Year. Yes, and we know about Um, the Watana Kunikorn. Actually, he's from Youngstown. Yes. Which made it much more special. And his wife is lovely, Eleanor. Yeah, she is lovely. Yeah, she is lovely. We know her. We go way back. Yeah, she's lovely. And and then afterwards, uh, my son, Matthew and his girlfriend gave me a big party at Clyde's oh, and a lot of my friends came and, nice. uh, you know from friends that I knew in college and medical school and then my newer infectious disease colleagues that had been with me through this whole journey of us being a, what was called the minority interest group in the infectious disease society so we all sort of I told them this was a village award yeah that you know that the society had presented to me but it was it was great it was so really, tell really people nice. exactly what that award what it means so it means that I'm the Infectious Disease Clinician of the Year mm-hmm. for 2019, and it comes with uh, the, the well. What it means is that you have done some outstanding work in the teaching and advocacy of infectious diseases over the years. Big time. It's really sort of like a culmination of your career. Yeah. You know, looking at all the body of work that you've done with all the different diseases and your teaching and mm-hmm. you know I was involved and they also mentioned that I have been actively involved in the National Medical Association lecturing every year and I had two mm-hmm. people that nominated me Dr. Virginia Kane okay who's on the faculty at University of Indiana uh-huh and Upton Allen Dr. Upton Allen who's professor of infectious diseases pediatrics at the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital okay okay and both of them wrote you know I guess stellar letters or whatever I said you all must have made me sound like like I parted the waters or something because. Well, but you you have <laughs> been in the trenches. But I've been in the trenches for a long time. And you have had a lot of mentees. Yeah. Yeah, including my honey sweet. Yeah, see, you so. don't realize, you know, mm-hmm. you look back over almost well, what is actually on forty years because that's when I finished my fellowship. Mm-hmm. You know, you just figure, well, I guess maybe I have done a little good in the neighborhood. You've done a little good in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood. and here's the thing that makes it. Great. You're what we call a quiet storm. Mm-hmm. You know, you you do things because that's what you supposed to do and that's what you want to yeah. do. You're not that's doing that, it that's true. To, to have all these no, things. No, none at all. No, I'm still pinching it's, myself with this award. Yeah. No. <laughs> and so it's good. It's good yeah. when when folks realize that. Mm-hmm. And do that for you. So well, kudos. Thank you. thank you, Vicky. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, this past weekend was my, surely they made a mistake, but they said it was my 45th reunion for medical school. I think they made a big <laughs> mistake. I'm sure they have not added up the numbers appropriately. <laughs> so Case Western Reserve School oh, of Medicine, nice. we had about 
seven or eight people in my class to show up. And, you know, there were only 10 women in my class. So I was really the only female that showed up this time. And that's how the picture looked, too. <laughs> <laughs> you saw the picture. <laughs> I yep. was like, well. That pretty uh, much represented it. <laughs> yeah, that picture pretty much represented the class. I said, well, uh, somebody got to represent it. <laughs> That picture pretty much said it all. That's wonderful. Yeah, so it was rough back in the day. The struggle was real. The struggle was real. The struggle real. was very real. Yeah, there were only 10 women in my class. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, yeah but here you are, and look at how many women now are oh, graduating. 50% of the classes now are medical, mm-hmm. medical schools are women. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've come a long way, baby. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, that's good. You sound like you had a wonderful I did. time. I did. I did. It was great. So what is going on this week? Vicky, everything. 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 Yes, you know, October, October yes. is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yes. We definitely want to say something about that. Most definitely. And as we look at the stats, it says one in eight women will develop invasive breast cancer, invasive cancer spread to other parts of the body. This year alone, more than 40,000 U.S. women will lose their breast cancer battles. Other than lung cancer, breast cancer death rates in America are higher than those of any other cancer. And so here are a few steps that the Mayo Clinic has given. Um, They've put it out there We always talk about being proactive, even though you might can't stop the process or you might can't totally prevent breast cancer, you can at least, there's not a guarantee, but you can at least lower your risk factor. Absolutely. And number one, you want to limit your alcohol intake. Studies have shown that breast cancer risks rise with high rates of alcohol consumption. So it's recommended that women limit themselves to one drink or less per day don't smoke you know we're surprised how people are still smoking i'm shocked isn't that something yeah i'm just shocked you don't smoke please just growing scientific i know smoke. growing scientific evidence points to a link between smoking and breast cancer and risk. one of these times we'll have to come back and talk about this vaping episode oh vaping big time we'll do that on another show big time because yeah. that is becoming yeah, wow cigarettes and the vaping and all of that stuff we'll have to talk about that oh on wow show. Yeah. yes number three Watch your weight. Studies additionally have shown a link between being overweight or obese and the development of breast cancer. This link strengthens when obesity occurs later in life, especially after menopause. Move more. We always talk about exercise. Physical activity is beneficial from numerous perspectives, including keeping your weight in check and it. As previously pointed out, it contributes to breast cancer prevention. Based on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services guidelines, adults who have no physical limitations should log in and at least do 150 minutes a week of moderate aerobic activity or 75 minutes of vigorous aerobic activity weekly. Also, doing strength training exercise at least twice a week is also recommended. But then we move on to sit less. Yep. Evidence is mounting that time spent sitting regardless of one's exercise regimen increases the risk of developing cancer, particularly for women. For example, according to an American Cancer Society study, women who spent six hours or more per day sitting outside of work had a 10% higher risk of developing invasive breast cancer compared with women who set less than three hours a day. So we're admonishing all of you guys to get up and move. Right. If you want to check out all of these recommendations, make sure you go to www.cancersociety.org. Go check it out. They have all the list of all of these. You can also go to Mayo Clinic, www.mayoclinic forward slash breast cancer awareness to find out all of these things. But I definitely forgot to add on before you, you can go and look them up, but you definitely want to think about a healthy diet as well. We yes, can't, that's really important. We cannot... Mm-hmm. Not say that right, right. <laughs> because a diet rich in vegetable, fruit, poultry, fish, and low-fat dairy products can 
reduce the risk of breast cancer. You need to think about these things. And get your mammograms. Yes. Get your mammograms. I mean, I have mm-hmm. a history of breast cancer. My mom is, like I said, 102. She had it in 1984. But, you know, I try to be vigilant. Like, those statistics that I was, I just heard you say, one in eight, it was not but 15 years ago when it was one in 10. I know. It seems like it's dropping. Mm-hmm. And so you feel like, I don't know, like, I don't know how most women feel. I always feel like it's Russian roulette when I go get my mammograms. I know, right? You're holding your breath. Mm -hmm. because you may not feel a lump but of course that's why they're doing them to look for something Mm -hmm. and so I do the 3D mammograms and that's something that you should talk to your doctor about especially if you have dense breasts or Mm -hmm. family history or whatever and insurance companies are paying for it yes they are so I would just encourage everybody out there to be sure to get your mammogram and I try to get mine in October which is breast cancer month so Mm -hmm. I won't forget I know right yeah so yes Go make sure you be proactive, even for the men too. Now, because men are men, getting men are getting. Oh, uh, you know who just developed breast cancer? Beyonce Knowles' father. Oh yeah, because he was on there talking mm-hmm. about it. Beyonce Knowles' father. He was on father. TV. Yes. yes. Let us all be proactive. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So we got two icons yes. that have passed away. Yes. Jessie Norman. Yes. She died. She was at the age of 74. Opera icon. Mm-hmm. Her funeral was held in, I thought this was interesting, in Augusta, Georgia. Yes, it was. And it was four hours long. It was. My mother would say, well, did they bring her back? <laughs> It was a white horse-drawn yes, carriage. Did yes, you see that yes. see-through? Mm-hmm. And my friend, I think I put that on Facebook, my friend, the maestro Damien Sneed, who I've come to know over the last, really, year, I've known about him for much longer, he directed the music for wow. the funeral. Oh, wow. And uh, Damien is a very talented, wonderful musician, everything. He knew the Norman family really well. In fact, you know, knew about how sick she was. I mean, I had seen her in wheelchairs over Me maybe too. recent years but yes. I, you know I certainly didn't expect that what she had was life threatening like that because I didn't know anything about what she had but 74 in this day and age is young it is you know and she was a force to be reckoned with I met her one time she mm-hmm. came to Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and she had done a concert unfortunately my encounter with her wasn't that fun uh-oh. 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 <laughs> it was not it wasn't the most pleasant experience but I chalked it up to I did get her autograph okay and but I just chalked it up to her being a diva you know divas have a right to be a Diva based on her body of work. And if you look over the years of what she's done and what she's achieved and all of that, kudos to Jesse Norman and may she rest in peace because that's the end of an era. That's the end of an era. Yes. And then we roll on to Diane Carroll. Oh, my God. Many of us, you don't remember it. You're Uh too young, but we all remember Julia. I was in college when Julia came on television. It was like, you know, that was the era when you, everybody ran to the television when there was a black person on. Okay. You know, that was really it. And so... I remember in college, I had a television, a little black and white TV, and everybody would run to my room to watch Julia because it was just so amazing to have a black woman Uh star in a situation, comedy or situation, whatever. Mm -hmm. And she was just beautiful. And and then she was on Dynasty. Now I watched it with Dynasty. I forget her name on Dynasty. Uh, Dominique. Dominique, right. Dominique. She was the diva. She was was up against Joan Collins. Oh, man. She was a force to be reckoned with. I loved it. Me too, me too. And she was looking good She was. uh, She looked, I'm certainly surprised to see that she passed too, but up until whenever I saw her in most recent times, always to the max on point. Mm -hmm. She was 84. She was 84. She had breast cancer, come to to find out. I know, I know. Yes. I know. And she was, I guess she um, was diagnosed early, what, in the 90s? Right. So, wow. Dominique Devereaux. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was an advocate for breast cancer prevention and stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as vocal as a lot of other people, but, you know, she had a, she was in Carmen Jones and, yes. and Porgy and Bess. And there was a book out where she had a little tryst with Sidney Poitier, I yes, believe. That yes. was part of her little history that, you know, was in there. And then I remember when I was, I had graduated from medical school in 1974, and that's when Claudine came out. Because yes. that's when the, the, the soundtrack was done by Glad. It's night right. and the pips. Yes. So yes, oh, wow. yes. I remember. I think I'm trying to think of who. I think her co-star was James Earl Jones and Claudine. Uh, yes. 
It so was. that was yeah, yeah, that was one of the the movies of my uh, remembrances and stuff of Diane Carroll and again mm-hmm. may she rest in peace. Just a, we lost two major icons, two major icons, two major icons. Yeah. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. That have paved the way for a Truly. whole bunch a of a lot folk. of these actors, actresses today are mm-hmm. standing on shoulders because they Jesse Norman and Diane Carroll paved the way, and certainly mm-hmm. in opera because mm-hmm. you can you know you can yeah. count on both hands a number of African American operas singers big time still 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 Still. I mean we're fortunate to have from this town Lawrence Brownlee who has gone on to become a very famous opera singer but then there was a lady too I keep thinking of her Denise well Denise Graves is an opera singer she sang at one of the funerals of somebody's funeral Graves is an opera singer okay Um, and I can't remember whose funeral I don't know whether it was it was no, it wasn't Bush. It was somebody before then. Okay, but yeah, you can count on both hands, you know, because opera world was very slow to, to accept African yeah. Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Warfield was a mm-hmm. one of the first, you know, actors on on Broadway, on Broadway or in the opera mm-hmm. uh, community, and and the women, you know, Leontine Price led the yes, way. Yes, I think yes. she's still alive. Leontine Price led mm-hmm. the way, and Grace Bunbury, and a lot of these uh, women. But you know, Jesse Norman was right up behind them Kathleen Battle Kathleen another, Battle, another yes. opera singer you know but you still I'm still not running down about 10 or 15 no right so, you know yeah. it's still a lot of disparities with respect to that so mm-hmm. yeah so what's the latest D so the latest is I have well, when I was in Washington, I was fortunate to hear Dr. Gail Bolin, who is head of the section of sexually transmitted diseases at the CDC, and she gave a talk right after, you know, those of us who got an award got an award. And I just kind of want to mention this today. Cases of syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia in the United States jumped last year, and an alarming number of newborns, newborn deaths were linked to something that we thought we had maybe not gotten rid of, but you certainly don't hear about it a lot, congenital syphilis. So the number of combined cases of syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia in the United States rose to a record high last year, including an alarming jump in the rate of newborn deaths caused by congenital syphilis, according to the CDC. More than 2.4 million syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia infections were reported in the United States in 2018, an increase of more than 100,000 cases from the previous year, the center said in its annual sexually transmitted disease surveillance report. It attributed the increase to several factors, including a decline in condom use, Mm. pass, Pass, including a decline in condom use among young people, Mm -hmm. men who have sex with men, increased screening among some groups, and cuts to sexual health programs at the state and local level, which led to clinic closures and fewer opportunities for counseling or or testing for sexually transmitted diseases. There were more than 115,000 syphilis cases reported to the center in 2018, a 71% increase since 2014. That included a 22% increase from 2017 in the number of newborn deaths related to congenital syphilis, Mm. which is passed from mother to child. What's happening is a lot of these women are becoming pregnant, and if they have syphilis and are not screened for it, first of all, a lot of them don't go and get prenatal care. Right. Because syphilis is part of the pre-screening. Yeah, the screening. If you don't treat them before they're five months, the baby's going to be born with congenital syphilis. And that was something that we used to see back in the 60s. I mean, you know, with, with increasing... Well, supposedly access to care. Of course, there are health care disparities. Right. But what you're finding is, and, and then those kids that live, they're born with deformities Stuff, yeah. that they will never get rid of, that you can identify somebody who was a congenital syphilis baby. It said the increase in newborn was a consequence of rising syphilis rates among women of reproductive age, whom it encouraged to practice safer sex and to get tested for STDs. There are tools available to prevent every case of congenital syphilis, said Gail Bolin, whom I just heard a couple weeks ago. Testing is simple and can help women to protect their babies from syphilis, a preventable disease that can have irreversible consequences. There were more than 1,300 cases of syphilis cases among newborns in 2018, a 40% increase from the previous year. The 2018 figure represented a 185% increase since 2014. It said 70% of congenital syphilis cases were in Texas, California, Florida, Arizona, and Louisiana. 
Wow. The number of gonorrhea cases rose as well. And the number of chlamydia cases rose by 19% and 63% for gonorrhea. Gay and bisexual men appear to be disproportionately affected by the increase in infection rates, with men who have sex with men accounting for 54% of all syphilis cases in 2018. The number of men with a diagnosis of gonorrhea has doubled, suggesting that gay and bisexual men were disproportionately also affected. The CDC says its figures might not capture the true scope of STD the STD epidemic in the United States because many of these cases go undiagnosed. You know, I just wanted to bring this up because these statistics are extremely alarming. Yeah, they're extremely alarming. So what are we supposed to be doing? Well, prevention, trying to get people tested. It should start, it, a lot of these people don't get to me. They get to their primary care physicians. Okay. And so like with PrEP, giving people PrEP, okay. of course they didn't say this in this article, but there's some evidence, which is sad, mm -hmm. to say that maybe one of the problems with that also is that now people who are taking PrEP kind of, feel that, oh. well, I'm not going to get HIV, but it doesn't prevent you from getting a sexually transmitted disease. Yeah, so at the end of the day, you just got to cover your stuff. You know, you just got to, mm. you know, you just, you got to, you got to cover your stuff. So, yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up because um, the statistics, like I say, are extremely alarming. And we here in Mahoning County, Mahoning Trumbull County, I've known we've had some cases of syphilis. Okay. So, you so know, we just got to be proactive. We do have to be proactive. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dee. You are so welcome. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Vicki Haywood-Doe. I just wanted to break in for a quick second and introduce to you the sponsor and creator of this show. It's the company I own, Haywood Doe Consulting Co., doing business as Vicky Doe Fitness. We are a health and wellness consulting company that specializes in designing and implementing medically integrated applied exercise physiology-based fitness wellness programs, initiatives, events, health promotion, and health education for special populations such as older folks, children, adolescents, overweight and obese individuals, cardiac rehab, women's health, and those who have chronic diseases. We have a team and network of healthcare professionals based out of Northeast Ohio, and we've worked with many companies, schools, churches, and organizations. If your goal is to transform your life by taking a holistic approach to living a life of health and total well-being, get in touch with us at info at To find out more about our own site and online programs and services, go to vikidofitness.com. And now back to the show. Well, today we talk about the latest innovative science research. We will be talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Rhonda Prisby. She will be talking about her cutting edge research that may change the way we look at and treat heart disease and stroke. But she will also share with us her career journey and how she is doing what she loves, how she ended up doing all of that, what she loves, and that is research. Let us listen right now to Dr. Rhonda Prisby. Now here with us today is Dr. Rhonda Prisby, a researcher, a physiologist, and associate professor of kinesiology in the College of Nursing and Health Innovation at the University of Texas at Arlington. Dr. Prisby will share with us her latest research finding and how this finding may contribute to the development of heart disease and stroke but also how this may change how we treat in the future chronic diseases. She will also share with us her fascinating career journey and how she has become what she is today, a well-established African-American woman scientist. Dee, we love Yay, that, right? we do. <laughs> yes, indeed. We do. So how are you, Dr. Rhonda? I'm well. I'd like to start off by thanking you for having me on the show. Oh, yes. You know, we've been planning and strategizing <laughs> this for a long time. Yeah. So I'm glad that you are here. 
So tell us then, tell us your story. What led you to becoming who you are today, a professor, a researcher, and physiologist at a well-known university? So I guess I would have to say that it's been kind of a transition. I don't want to use the word by accident, but I guess it has been. So I started off, my undergraduate degree is in art, actually, from Hiram College. And after I had graduated from Hiram College, I was thinking about what I was going to do next in in my career. And I had decided to, after doing some research, I decided that I would enter into the master's program in exercise physiology at Kent State University. And so while I had taken classes, science classes in undergraduate during my undergraduate work, I did not really have a focus in science until I entered into the master's program. Even then, I had decided that I was going to go into cardiac rehabilitation. Okay. So I was going to receive a master's degree in exercise physiology with a focus in cardiac rehabilitation. And I had started the program off in non-thesis track. Okay. Um, And my last year there, a new professor had come to the program, and she had gotten me involved in her research project. And from there, I transitioned into the thesis track of the program and ended up graduating after having completed a research project that led to a thesis. And then after that, I pursued a Ph.D. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You change track. That happens a lot when folks, you know, you start out with something, but you get introduced And then the next thing you know, you go in a a new direction. So that's really awesome. But my question is, so if you majored in art, when you went into the exercise physiology program, did you have to go back and take a lot of science courses to kind of get up to snuff? Yes. So I did actually take some courses prior to being admitted into the program. Mm -hmm. I had actually, after I graduated and before I decided to pursue exercise physiology, I was still taking some courses, some of the courses that I had, science courses I had lacked in undergrad. So I just went to, actually, I took a class at Youngstown State University, Uh physics, physics. Oh, okay. And then I went to Ken and spoke to some of the professors there about what else I needed. Mm -hmm. And so prior to entering to the program, I think I only needed a couple more science classes. I think it was the intro to exercise physiology and anatomy and physiology, which I believe was a two-semester course. Mm -hmm. And then after I satisfactorily completed those courses, then they let me into the program. So you went on, got your Ph.D., and so what happened after that? After my Ph.D., I went to Louisiana State for that, and then I conducted my first postdoc at Texas A&M University, and that's where I got involved in the research that I'm doing today. Okay. So I went to work with a gentleman named Michael Delp, who is a vascular physiologist, Um, and I spent several years with him. We actually, halfway through my time with him, we actually moved to West Virginia University School of Medicine, um, and I continued on with him there for a little bit. Before then, I went to France to complete a second postdoctoral fellowship. The work in France was more of a bone biology base, but they had an interest in looking at the vascular changes in the bone, which really was the attraction for me because when I worked with Michael Delp, we were working and looking at the vascular side to bone tissue. Mm -hmm. And so this was really an opportunity for me. I had learned more about the vascular system with Michael Delp. And then when I went to France, it had a bone biology slant Mm -hmm. also looking at the vascular system. Well, since you've jumped into talking about the research, because I was waiting a little bit later, what is the animal model that you've used for this? Mostly we used rats. So we've used a variety of different rats. I don't know if you want to know the exact names, but we use an aging model, Mm -hmm. and then some are just general research models. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have worked in mouse models as well. Okay. We haven't looked at any transgenic animals yet. Mm -hmm. Mostly it's just been, you know, just regular rat models and mouse models. Okay. I've been knowing you forever, but (laughs) (laughs) I definitely want you to tell the folks your interesting story about the whole shuttle and and what you were doing at that time. So tell that part of the story as well. Yes, so when I went to work with Dr. Michael Delp, at that time he was at Texas A&M University, and he was a PI on a grant um, funded through NASA where he actually had rats that were aboard the space shuttle Columbia. Hmm. So we had an opportunity as a lab to go to the Kennedy Space Center and we actually went 
a few weeks, I think, prior to the launch of the shuttle because we took all of our equipment, we packed up the lab, we drove the equipment and ourselves to Florida. We set up our equipment in a temporary space at the Space Center, Mm -hmm. and we actually had the opportunity to see the Space Shuttle Columbia launch. Wow. Um, And during the time when it was supposed to be up in space or while it was in space, we were practicing for when the animals returned to Earth that we were going to conduct vascular studies on these animals. Four of us had, I guess, the fortune or misfortune, if you if you want to look at it that way, of actually attending the what would have been the landing of the space shuttle. Mm. So we had gone to the landing strip, and at the landing strip on Kennedy Space Center, they had bleachers set up for mm. people who, like family members of the astronauts, mm. as well as other personnel that could come and actually view the shuttle. And so we were waiting in the bleachers, and they had a huge clock that was counting down. And we could hear over the loudspeaker the communications between um, Houston and the shuttle. Mm. And we were waiting because when the clock was to hit zero, the shuttle should exactly be on the landing strip at that time. Mm -hmm. So the clock was ticking down. It went down to zero, and there was no shuttle. Mm -hmm. And then the clock started ticking up. Mm. And at that time, we heard Houston tried to call out for the shuttle, and there was no response. Mm. And then Houston tried again, and there was no response. And then Houston said something about there's a contingency. And, of course, being a non-NASA personnel, we don't know what that means. Mm. But other NASA personnel started gathering up the family members of the astronauts who were in the bleacher mm. next to us, and they were taking them to buses, and we didn't know what was going on. And then they came and got us and put us on the bus to go back to the Space Center. And we didn't know what was going on. But several of the people on the bus started receiving phone calls from friends and family members. And they let us know that the shuttle had exploded. Mm. Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. So that was very, it was very powerful because you could imagine the mood of the of the individuals at the Space Center because at this point we didn't know why it exploded. We mm-hmm, thought right. maybe since it was so close to 9-11 that it could have been a terrorist act mm-hmm. because there was an Israeli astronaut aboard the shuttle. Mm-hmm. And so we were thinking, or at least some people were thinking it could have been terrorist-related. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of in limbo for a while mm-hmm. before wow. we knew what had happened. What happened then, you know, of course we saw the whole story and and all of that, and we um, felt really bad, you know, because it was so much research that was going to be coming back down. So what did you guys do after when all your research just kind of went up in flames, right? Yeah, so it was it's kind of ironic because the space shuttle broke up or exploded over Texas, and we had come from Texas. Mm. And, and so what happened was, RPI, Michael Delp, remained behind with, I think, a few other people. But the rest of us, we, we came back to Texas. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that was just kind of it. Okay, wow. Wow. Yeah, it was such a, it was such a tragedy, and it's such mm-hmm. a, it was such a somber day. I'm telling you, it was. So you, you were close to that incident, and that's what made it so powerful. You continued on. How are you, how you are now? What you doing now? (laughs) Yeah, so that was actually in the early stages of my postdoc with Uh Michael Delp when I first went to his lab. Okay. And the vascular work that we were going to conduct on the rats that were aboard the Columbia was ultimately not my focus. Mm. So we were going to look at changes in in vascular function and, for example, skeletal muscle or the coronary circulation. And my project at that time in his lab was looking at the bone microcirculation. And so once we returned back to Texas and kind of regrouped, then we, you know, he had other funding and his wife who works with him had other funding. And so we had just kind of continued on with those projects. And that's when I got involved in looking at the bone microcirculation. Mm. And so from there, Mm -hmm. um, ultimately I stayed there for a while. And then the two of them had accepted positions at West Virginia University School of Medicine. And so I moved with them and continued to work on the same, basically the same projects, looking at different animal models and different um, investigations with different animal models. That's when I decided to move on and then go to France to look at the vascular system from a bone biologist's perspective. 
I was very intrigued because, you know, you've been showing me some of your slides and so forth, but I like how you look and you go, wow, all those blood vessels and stuff in the bone, we never really think about that. So what got you excited about that? I think it was because Michael Delp had initiated these studies. Um, He didn't have anybody that could really dedicate time to getting this area of research going. And so when I met with him for an interview, he explained to me how he wanted to get this research aspect going in his lab. And he also explained another potential project that I could work on looking at the changes in vascular function, for example, in skeletal muscle, either with aging or with exercise training. Mm. I remember having a conversation with him, and he explained how there was so many researchers looking at these other circulatory beds. Mm-hmm. but no one was looking at the bone. Mm-hmm. And that I found the most intriguing because that meant that the field was wide open and that meant that the research possibilities were wide open, that anything that I did would be new and novel to the literature. That's what got me excited about it. When Vicki was talking about the vascular aspect of bones, as an infectious disease specialist, we know about it all too well because you know we deal with diabetic foot infections and leg infections and so forth, and that's how infection spread, which we have to tell people, you know, it's not just the foot. Mm-hmm. The leg upward, the, the thigh shares the same circulation <laughs> that right. the foot does. And I, so we have to be extra special careful, even when somebody gets an amputation, that, you know, those bacteria have now spread all the way up. So we have to take extra special measures to treat with antibiotics, even though the leg may be gone or the foot may be gone or the toe may be gone. So we know how vascular we understand that as well. So that's interesting. So since we're talking about it, let's go and talk about your latest research. You know, tell us about it and your latest finding. It's kind of twofold. So I do functional studies on the blood vessels, and so we work with with rodents. And so what we're able to do in the lab is we're able to dissect out the blood vessels, feeding the bone. And it's a very delicate procedure, and we end up what we call cannulating the vessels and we're able to add pressure to the vessels to, to mimic blood pressure, or we're able to push flow through the vessels to mimic changes in blood flow, or we can add chemicals directly on the vessels and watch them constrict and dilate, and then we can measure changes in diameter. So one thing that I wanted to do in my lab is I wanted to start assessing the functional capacity of the bone marrow blood vessels. That means actually taking out the marrow of the bone and looking for blood vessels and then cannulating them and assessing their function. And so when I started doing this, I noticed something strange about the blood vessels. So when I picked them up with these kind of tweezer-like instruments, if I pinched too hard on the vessel, it it would break in half. And the vessel appeared very crystalline in nature, and it was translucent. You could see right through it, Mm -hmm. which is not normal for a blood vessel. Mm -hmm. And so when I looked under higher microscopy, The blood vessels were really rigid and stiff, and they had characteristics that were unique to bone. And so to me, this said that the vessels were kind of converting into bone tissue, Mm. and they're losing their vascular function. Mm. And so when we wanted to look at even higher microscopy with, for example, a scanning electron microscope, we can see the really small details on these blood vessels. And we noticed on the outside of the blood vessels, like some of the blood vessels, we call them transitioning blood vessels, where they would have normal aspects that a blood vessel would have, but it would have mineralized tissue as well. Mm. And when we looked at higher magnification, we'd see these little particles that were adhered to the outside and the inside of the blood vessel. Mm. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to look at how these blood vessels looked in comparison to a normal blood vessel. So we just took a, a aorta, one of the large blood vessels in a rat, and we just prepared it for scanning electron microscopy just so we can compare what a normal blood vessel should look like versus what we call these ossified blood vessels. Okay. And when we did that, we happened to notice the same type of particle sticking out of the normal aorta. And for me, that meant that these particles, if they were the same, Mm -hmm. they were escaping the bone marrow and they were getting into the general circulation. Mm. And so what I had my student do next was to get some blood samples from the rodents to see if we can find these particles. And we were able Mm. to find them. Wow. And then I said, well, let's get some blood samples from human subjects to see if they're present in human subjects and they're present in human subjects. Mm. 
So the interesting thing about these particles, we call them ossified particles because we, they contain calcium and other elements of bone tissue. Mm. The interesting thing about the particles is the shape of the particles. Some of them have very sharp tips and edges. And then also some diameter, some of the diameters of these particles are large enough that they potentially could serve as emboli mm. in the vascular system. And so those are the things that we're trying to explore now. We want to, for one, try to determine why the blood vessels, we think these blood vessels are converting into bone, why this is happening. Right. We want to determine if these blood vessels are generating these particles, mm. if the particles are actually coming from these types of blood vessels. And we want to determine what would be the potential pathological consequences of these particles once they get into circulation. Were these rodents matched with respect to age in humans? Like, were they, I don't know what so, a rat year is, but, or a rodent yeah, so year the, is. So the rodents, we, we did a time course study looking at one month of age, uh -huh. six months of age, 12 months of age, mm -hmm. 18 months, and 24 months of age. Mm -hmm. So approximately a one month old animal would be an adolescent. Oh, okay. Um, so that wasn't and a done all question. the way up to okay. 22, yeah. 24 months, that person would be around probably 55 or 60 mm -hmm. years of age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the, the interesting thing is, mm -hmm. is that we see these ossified bone marrow blood vessels in young one month old rats. Wow. And we see ossified particles in one month old rats. Mm. There's no distinction between okay. young or young or old in yes. regards to the presence of these conditions, but at least in terms of the volume of these ossified okay. blood vessels, they're increasing with age. Okay. So it's more with age. Yeah. Describe how they look. Are, are they long? Are they regular round? Are they jagged? I mean, how do they look? Yeah, some of them, they have various shapes. Okay. Some of them take on like a ball-like appearance and some take on a triangular type of appearance. Some are oblong in shape, and so there are various shapes that are associated with these particles. And I suspect that they take on the shape of the circulating or flowing blood. Hmm. So whatever they're experiencing when they're in circulation, I think they kind of take on that shape. Okay. Hmm. Wow. The clinical applicability of this would be, as I was looking in your research, some of the articles that were out there was the implication for blockages, strokes, and... MIs, am I right? Or yeah, disease? so that's one thing we want to look at. Okay. At this point, we know that of a certain diameter, theoretically that, sh that could happen, mm -hmm. but we need to make sure, we need to try to prove that's the case. Right. And so one of the things that our lab is now focusing on is trying to obtain blood samples from individuals whom have suffered a stroke. Mm. or a heart attack mm -hmm. in the past, mm -hmm. and we want to see if maybe they have a higher number of mm. the particles that are large enough to, to cause those conditions, mm. or if they have just a higher number overall. So that's one of the things that we have to try to actually prove scientifically now. So right now we're speculating that this might be the case, and now we have to work towards proving that, that it is the case. One question that I have, since those of us that are ID people say it's all about infectious diseases, ultimately we think everything's going to be ID. But, Some um, bacteria somewhere. <laughs> so have you, have you looked to see if there's any infectious, I mean, this may be extrapolating too far, any infectious thing that may be contributing to any of this? or I would be open to all possibilities mm -hmm. of trying to figure out how this is happening. Mm -hmm. In our rodent models, the animals are bred so that disease is minimized as mm -hmm. they age, even though these animals do develop certain diseases. Mm -hmm. But that's keep that to a minimum. Mm -hmm. um, our human subjects, when we took blood samples from our human subjects, this was a preliminary type of, of study where we didn't collect health histories. Mm -hmm. We only asked if they described their health, um, if they were generally healthy. Now, that, that included individuals with hypertension. The mm -hmm. only conditions that we excluded were those with type 2 diabetes and cancer. Oh, okay. So those are the only blood samples that we did not collect. Other than that, the individuals could have some certain diseases. So I certainly, that possibility is certainly plausible. What do you think then, if you, with what you find, how do you think that'll change our treatment then for chronic diseases, heart disease, and stroke? What, what do you speculate right now? I think probably it would just give clinicians or physicians something else to consider. Okay. So, you know, we, we have certain um, ideas about how people suffer strokes and, 
and heart attacks. Mm -hmm. And I think this could just be one more way in which we can view how a stroke or a heart attack may manifest. And of course, knowledge is power, right? Yes. Once you understand that this is a possibility, you can think of ways in which you can combat it. And then maybe you all could develop a marker for us. I'm just trying to think of all the clinical applicabilities of, you know, seeing if there's an increased incidence of that by some marker that you might develop. Which, yes, you yes. Know, and you we had considered that because, so if we think about inside the bone tissue, if we think that the blood vessels inside the marrow are converting into bone, mm-hmm. Clinically, we have no way to assess this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like there are no instruments to look and penetrate the bone in humans Mm -hmm. and be able to diagnose this. Mm -hmm. Right. So we were thinking at least in one aspect in terms of a biomarker, if these particles are related to these ossifying blood vessels, perhaps this would be one way in which we can quantify the disease, at Mm -hmm. least in the skeleton. Right. And then maybe, as you suggested, maybe think of ways in which we can come up with a biomarker mm-hmm. if these particles are related to heart attack or stroke. Mm-hmm. Maybe yes. we could use, think of biomarkers that would be able to detect for these conditions as well. Right. So you are a busy bee. Wow, this yes. is fantastic. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's know. very exciting because um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different possibilities like research projects that can yes. stem from this. Big and time. I think all of them would be exciting. Yes, I think so too. I can say that I knew you when <laughs> when you go up there and get <laughs> your Nobel, Nobel Prize. <laughs> I know I'm thinking the exact same well, thing. Let's, let's keep our I, fingers crossed I talked for that to one. Her, I talked to her on the, on the radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. I would just like to get in one question here about African-American women in science. You know, there's still disparities. Do you continue to see this? I mean, like a talk that I gave a few weeks ago was like, you know, the paucity of women chairs or departments and head of this and that. So are you still seeing disparities with respect to that? Yes, without question. Yes. And so it's, I think, something that we will always have to continue to work on. I think it'll be a long-term plan for us to try to bring equity to academia I don't think it'll be easy by any stretch of the imagination. It's just something we have to continue to push forward and and try to work and with. And we're Dave. saying that in 2019. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's it's really it's really shameful. The struggle is um, real. <laughs> yeah. The struggle is real. That's great. Are you involved with any of the STEM programs for early kids, for children and you know, coming up through the ranks cuz that's where you have to start with them. Yeah, that's right. I am not involved in that aspect of it. Things that I have been engaged in, unfortunately, have been those individuals that are already in graduate school. Well, that's helpful, too. You need mentors. You need Um, mentors. Certainly, that's something to consider. Mm -hmm. Because I do think it starts, I mean, it doesn't start when a person enters into undergrad or they go mm -mm. into higher education. It starts right from birth, I believe. I believe so, Um, too. When you talk about pre-K and opportunity to have Mm -hmm. pre-K and be exposed to STEM. You know, one of the things that I always think about is, you know, when people find out I have an art degree, they think it's odd that I made this transition. But I would say Mm -hmm. that we make decisions based upon what we're exposed to and what we're encouraged to be involved in. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we can't make decisions about what we don't know about and what we don't see. Yes. One of the turning points for me was having the opportunity to get involved in a research project. And then when I did that, I found that I really liked doing this. Yeah. And so a lot of times I think it's a lack of opportunity, whether we're talking about at the undergraduate level, higher education, or even at kindergarten, at the That's kindergarten right. level. That's right. It's providing those opportunities that are important. And so that's why we like that you have come to the show and talk about your research, not only because it's awesome research, but folks that are listening can say, oh, my goodness, that's an African-American sister friend. Right. I'm in awe. Holding it down, yeah, doing things that are innovative because, yes, we can do innovative things. And, yes, we are smart. Right. We can do those scientific things and make a difference in this world and society. So kudos to you. Absolutely kudos. Thank you. We'll have to have you back as your research continues because, you know, this, like I said, I'm always looking for the clinical applicability and, you know, we're finding out new things every day and changing the paradigm on how we treat diseases. So that's great. Yes. Yes, and I would would love to talk to you further because it's always nice to have a clinician's perspective Mm -hmm. because ultimately that's what we're working towards. Yes, exactly. I still have one quick question. 
kind of eyes do you have to have to cannulate those little teeny tiny? That's <laughs> <laughs> a, a very powerful microscope. I guess so. I guess so. I know because uh, we were just talking about glasses. <laughs> oh yes. Uh huh. Oh, no shaky hands either. Big time. Right. No At, caffeine before you can. No, exactly. Dr. Rhonda, we are glad that you thank you so um, much came here on our show. Yes. Good luck on your discovery and future research. And how can people get in touch with you and read more about your research and your work? I'm at the University of Texas at Arlington in the Department of Kinesiology. If anybody who's interested can visit the webpage, and I'm sure that they'll be able to find me. I also would like to put a plug out for the Bone Vascular and Microcirculatory Society. Okay. Um, I started this society because there aren't many individuals studying this field, mm -hmm. and it would I think of it as a way in which we can kind of get to know each other and communicate with one another. So I'd like to put a plug in for the society. If you're interested, it's more of a, a site for academicians. The layperson may not enjoy it so much, but if you're interested, please visit www.boneBloodVessels.org. All right. And thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Now, this Inside Show, Dee, do you have anything that you want to give us? Well, first and foremost, since this is a topic near and dear to me because of my mom, is I still encourage all women to adhere to the recommendations that you gave to prevent breast cancer. I would tell all the women to go to their physicians. Again, you know, there's a lot of genetic information that we know with the BRCA genes, and we didn't talk about that with respect to breast cancer. So go get your mammogram. And number two... What a wonderful interview that was uh, with Dr. Rhonda Prisby. My mouth is still hanging open with the kind of research that she's doing. And yes. kudos to her, an African-American sister. Yes, um, our who sister is, uh, friend that's and, really and, doing and it. And her research, like we were talking, hopefully will have major clinical applicability. And seriously, maybe one day we'll hear about her winning the Nobel Prize. Yes. Thank you for bringing her on, Vicki. Yeah, that's my homegirl. Yeah, yes, we love to hear that. And I like to bring a broader perspective yes. because most people think of exercise physiologists that all we do is just talk about lifting exactly. weights and riding bikes, right? Yeah, exactly. and riding bikes. Right. But we're actually physiologists yeah. and, and just a whole broad perspective yeah. on that. It's nice to see that Dr. Rhonda Prisby is holding it down holding and it down. doing very yeah. great. Excellent. Yes, yes, yes. And as always, for more information, go to our website, www.vikidofitness.com. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or just something to say, tweet us, email us, go on Facebook, and share with us your thoughts. You've been listening to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. Vicki Doe is owner of Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum, a place to discuss, learn, and participate in healthy living. You can get in touch with Vicki by email at info at vickidofitness.com.